HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Fair Kitchens. Learn about the Fair Kitchens code and join the movement at fairkitchens.com. Now streaming from HRN, this is The Feed Feed. I'm Jay Cohen, Editorial Director of The Feed Feed, the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source of what to cook, bake, and drink. Occasionally joined by our co-founders, Julie and Dan Resnick, we sit down with leaders and upstarts of the food media realm. So we often say that we're, as Feed Feed, answering this sort of age-old question, which is, what do we eat for fill-in-the-blank, breakfast, lunch, dinner? Our approach to doing so involves lifting up voices from culinary content creators all over the world, no matter how big or small their following is. This podcast takes the democratization of food media one step further by giving a behind-the-scenes look of the Epicurean magazines, websites, videos, and accounts you digest every day. We'll discuss everything from breaking into the industry, navigating social media. That's been my bigger social media thing is like, I think like I just get bored very quickly. And even when things are working really well, I'm like, everyone's doing this. I don't want to do this anymore. Building and growing community. People are like, why is it five E's? And I'm like, I don't know. When you say eats, how many E's does that feel like it sounds like? And that's why. No real good rhyme or reason to any of it, but that's also kind of been our style this whole time and producing content that resonates with young and old. You know, if someone doesn't like my writing or the photographs of my book or the design, that's subjective. But if I see that a recipe didn't work, that I really failed someone. So whether you want to know what goes into food styling a magazine cover, the process of getting a cookbook deal, understanding what the hell TikTok is, or grasping how a recipe can go viral. I mean, I guess the thing about going viral, too, is that um, then it becomes it's out there. And, and people start claiming it as their own. And that's happened a few times recently with that tart, which is sort of depressing. Mm, but... Drag them. <laughs> Name names. I'm not naming no. any names, but you know who you are. <laughs> we'll be covering it all. This is the Feed Feed Podcast. Subscribe to the Feed Feed wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. 
Today, I'm speaking with Amanda Hesser and Christina Wasserman from 5-2, the direct-to-consumer kitchenware brand from Food52. Super psyched, like very psyched. Um, as many of you probably know, Amanda and her co-founder Meryl started Food52 in 2009 as an online recipe sharing forum. Since then, the company has grown tremendously, and in 2018, they launched 5.2, their own line of products chosen and designed entirely through crowdsourcing feedback from members of the Food52 community. I am so excited to have you both here. Um, I feel like there's a lot of talk about community, and you guys have actually really built that, and it's very obvious in the new product line that um, you're really listening, which is kind of amazing. I, I, I When I saw the first cutting board, I was like, ah! Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I think it's going to be really helpful for people, A, as they're trying to figure out how to leverage a community into a product, um, but also how to stay true to that community and build it as it goes and kind of, um, you know, let things come out of it that, that sort of naturally should. So welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Um, Thank you. So, Amanda, so you met Meryl uh, when you were both food writers um, at the New York Times. And what year was that? So... Yeah, actually, Meryl was not writing for them yet. Okay. It was 2000, I want to say, uh, four, five, right. 2004 through 2005. Yeah. Right. And I was, she was just moving back to New York um, after having a catering com- uh, company of her own in Boston. And mm-hmm. um, and she actually, she was also doing writing. And uh, anyway, a friend introduced us because I was starting work on this big project and right. I needed some help. And we hit it which off. Which was the New York Times. The essential New York Times right. cookbook. cookbook. Yeah. 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 Um, which actually I have a new edition coming out this year. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, was up busy. until 1 a.m. Uh, yeah. doing edits last night <laughs> uh, because I'm still like a college student. Right. But um, yeah, so we met and um, we started working on this book. And five years later, you know, we just were spending a lot of time together and really, you know, as in our jobs as food writers and editors, really kind of watching what was happening in right. the industry and really what was happening culturally and um, wanting to respond to that, but frankly, just wanting a place, you know, that we wanted to spend time at that really right. would help, you know, had all the things that we wanted in a in a site and in a brand. And I mean, I remember, I mean, because this was before Instagram, mm-hmm. this was, I mean, I, I, I think I was kind of an early adopter in like 2010. And I remember being so excited that this was actually a place I was there anything like it at the time? I mean, it was sort of like the be all it was like a community sourced cookbook that was kind of live and interactive that you could be a part of and you could read from I mean was that so it wasn't that there wasn't community online around the topic of food you know there was um you know there were chat rooms there were um you know Epicurious which you know has been around for a very long time um you know had user some user generated recipes but it was more about the um kind of sensibility of like we feel this should be a conversation and that people I think that before we came along there was a bit of a um sort of a bias that you know 
really great content had to come from the experts, yes. from, from the con, you know, the right. sort of the content providers right. who are from these established brands right. that were broadcasting at you, as opposed to, you know, they have that. Yes, they do have uh, are producing great, high quality content. But actually, Americans had come to a right. point where they they also knew, yeah. you know, a lot about cooking, and that actually there were all of these um, great talents kind of tucked away in their homes that yeah. you didn't have it, you know, that didn't have a platform right. unless they created their own blog. And I really right. think that the the um, explosion of, of food blogs was a big sig- um, signal for us, right. which was that, you know, this was people essentially crying out and saying, like, I've got stuff to share, yeah. too. Right. And actually, like, I've got, I know a lot, and I want, to, I want other people to... To, to see it and I want credit for that but I also want like to have a conversation around right. it yeah because when I think about Epicurious and obviously no shade to like all those they <coughs> did feel like they were sort of like the experts or like the cooking people mm-hmm. like the you know who sent out recipes and this was how you did it and mm-hmm. Food 52 felt very much like I there was a woman in Indiana and she had a great chili recipe yeah. and she got to put it on there and there did you think at the time that's where it was going to end. Like, did you, did you have a sort of a big picture plan? I mean, you couldn't have known about what was actually about to happen in no, social yeah. and digital. Right. And we still don't know, right? Like, right. who knows what, what the world will look like or that world will look like in five years. And right. I think it's just a matter of staying ahead and adapting and really, you know, taking advantage of, you know, mediums and platforms that really can um, help us do what we're already doing better. And, um, I don't think, you know, we certainly didn't have a, you know, crystal clear map of exactly what we were doing, but we did understand that there was an opportunity to create a a new kind of world and company that didn't, didn't see itself necessarily as a media company, nor just a commerce company, but something bigger. Right. And that, I guess that leads to another question. Did you at that time think about how it was going to monetize? Like, what, mm-hmm. I mean, was it primarily ads from larger cooking companies or did you know that you were going to be selling product? Did you think that was going to be like the main source of revenue? Like, how did you think about it in 2009? Oh, we certainly had ideas. Right. <laughs> I would say notions about right. how to, um, you know, we, we understood that advertising was the probably the probably. clearest path in the beginning. Yeah. And we did see um, commerce as... An opportunity down the road, but the sort of structures online for selling things right. were, was even though that's not that long ago. Yep. actually, were so different. Yeah, um, you know, drop shipping was much less common. There were many companies who just wouldn't drop ship right. that today do a lot of drop shipping. Meaning that you didn't have to have inventory yes. and you could just say, hey, plateware company, send this. That's to, correct. Right, and that. like affiliate sales where you feature a product and then if somebody clicks through and buys it from that site, you, you might get, get a, a percentage of the sale. That was not a a well-established right. um, sort of system. And now it is. And that's not something that we do a lot of, but it's certainly something that a lot of um, bigger media companies are doing right. to um, increase their revenue. And so, yeah, I, it was a little bit of, we, <laughs> we were very focused 
we wanted to do it down the line. We had it in our like presenta- our like right. investor presentations, but we weren't pursuing it actively day to day because we were really focused on building community, you know, establishing a very strong brand sensibility right. and aesthetic. And you know, that takes a lot of that takes time. And and you know, we were two people in the beginning, and right. uh, you know, you we were focused on building that relationship with with people and, and and creating a really strong brand identity because we felt like that was the most important thing we needed to do in the beginning. Yeah. And over it, over making money actually. For sure. And I mean I think it's you know, you still there's still like a food fifty two vibe and like aesthetic. Aesthetic, yes. yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, you can tell that you invested that time and energy into building that community and that brand. Can you give a couple of examples sort of in like the early first couple of years of things that you remember doing sort of consciously to do that other yep. than just like making it look pretty? Yeah. So one of the things that we did with our photography was we, you know, traditionally food media brands would kind of outsource their photography to a studio and a food stylist would go to a prop house and like get a bunch of props and make everything look really beautiful. Mm-hmm. But each each like month of a, a magazine issue like the photography would be very different. They might right. use the, some photographers, you know, again, uh, and, again. and again, right. but the sort of feeling would be different because they'd yep. be kind of trying to create a new mood. We wanted to create a sense of home, like that right. our site you you recognized the bowls we were using, yep. and that you you had a sense of place because this was also something that we felt like was missing, like terribly missing on the internet, which was just that it yeah. felt. Um, it was um, it was sort of unanchored, yep. and we wanted to give it an anchor because we feel like right. that's such the like what you like about what pe- many people like about cooking and home is, right. is that sense of place and that meaning. I think also one of the things that I've been thinking about lately is a lot of food media um, sort of came from the fashion world, and I think one of the things that you're talking about is those different photo shoots. Mm-hmm in food magazines almost resembled a different fashion shoot mm-hmm. for like today we're going to be snowy and you know with a fur hat and then today we're going to be a tropical you know leopard or whatever whereas you were coming from such a food centric place mm-hmm. there was no fashion i mean it was beautiful and it was clean and it was aesthetically really pleasing but it wasn't there was no um the through line was the food it mm-hmm. wasn't about the other stuff around it and that that kind of felt very obvious so yeah yeah. another thing we did was you know the recipes that we were featuring we wanted Meryl and I were in the photos of the cooking Uh them especially the contest the what we did a lot of recipe contests back then and that was important because we wanted again like to put people behind like say like we're here with you we're really cooking these recipes yeah and um and we want you to know that know us and know that there are people behind this site who yeah <laughs> like, are actually they, real people yeah, yeah we live yeah. in brooklyn and this is what <laughs> the kitchen looks like and you know just I, the, even though that seems maybe obvious today right. especially with kind of instagram and people really are kind of opening up their lives yeah. to other people it didn't exist then no it no was, one knew it was the very behind the scenes people. yeah it was very impersonal like all yeah. recipes i like I had to Google, you know, where yeah. are they? Because they right. had been sold a couple of times. Yeah. You know, like where are their offices and like who works there? Right. It's so funny. It's so weird looking back just 10 years ago because mm-hmm. it's a completely different world. Yes. So did the community grow? It grew very organically because you weren't doing a ton of like paid anything because I don't know that there 
was that right. much to do at that point. Yeah. Um, did it grow as quickly as you thought it would quick, more quickly or uh, around? I mean, we, we felt like it was growing quickly. I mean, if you talk to a venture capitalist, they never think it's growing quickly enough. So right. I, it, it sort of depends on whose perspective. Right. I, it felt like the growth, it was, I don't think we ever had such crazy fast growth that we thought like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, beyond our control. But we also didn't necessarily have that expectation because it, again, we were sort of building this brick by brick. Yep, and, you know, again, like building that relationship with readers and followers, if you want it to really be kind of a meaningful relationship where you're having an actual conversation and they feel really connected, like, that takes time. It just doesn't happen overnight. Do you remember the time where it went from you being able to manage that to having to have other people manage that? I mean, at the beginning, I'm sure you were like writing back to every woman who was, you know, submitting sure. or whatever. I but. mean, it's, I, I still answer questions on hotline. I still respond right. to all the comments that threads that I'm, I'm on, right. which you can imagine after 10 years is a lot. And uh-huh. anytime anyone comments like, so I, you know, I mean, Christina and I are still answering, you know, uh, we, we answer the, you know, the inbound five, two right. questions. And I mean, we have infused this, it, it, it's in sense, instead of like kind of passing it off to yeah. it's more about infusing the sensibility into everyone who works with right. us. Like whether you're an engineer on our team or you're in customer care or you're right. an editor or, you know, you're working as a buyer, like that our, cust- our customers, our readers are everything yeah. to us and that and and they and personal touch is one of our core values as a company yeah. and so just trying to get everyone in the mindset of like you can it actually at scale you can be personal yeah that's cool you know i think zappos was a great example yeah. of this where they you know who who thought that like an internet right. shit company where you could have like a you know feel like a human was answering your customer care question. They they really made it just a, it's just about making it a priority. a priority. Yeah, I mean I think over and over that's kind of what people come in here keep saying. Like you just have to decide who you are and decide from there what you care about and then those things have to infuse everything. Yeah. So, you knew you wanted to sell stuff. At this point, 2017-ish, that's when you started to have like a marketplace of other people's and other companies' yeah. products. And how did that go? And what what lessons did you learn from that? And were you thinking about doing... I know you did like partnerships, mm-hmm. but it feels like there was a shift from like just partnerships with other companies to then like making your own line of things. Yeah. I mean, we learned a ton. Mm-hmm. Um because we didn't know what we were doing. And um, I think the thing that was, I I think we naturally thought, yes, we would love to do our own product line at some point, but it just, the, the, the line, like the, the, the route from A to B mm-hmm. didn't feel like linear to right. us at that point. It just felt like, okay, we've got to, we've got to immerse ourselves in this, you know, dropship commerce model right. and like, figure out what we're doing and like what is really needed. And one of the things, um, there are two things that I feel like big takeaways. Yeah. One is that, um, I think people see, you know, products in a store and they just think like people are making stuff and they're selling it. Oh my and gosh. it's such a relationships business <laughs> and yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. And, um, you know, Christina with her background, obviously you, you know, this very, uh, intensely well. And I think you're an amazing at building relationships, but like that is everything. Oh yeah. And we, you know, and it actually, I in some ways, I felt that incredibly heartening and inspiring because mm-hmm. we we are so 
um, focus on our community. And this is just another community. Yep. It's sort of a behind the scenes community yep. of, you know, makers and manufacturers who really like are such experts and care so much about the products that they're mm-hmm. making. And what we found is that you like, you, you kind of filter over time, right? You want to work with the best, the best right. of those who really do care. And, and that's that, and that it was actually through that evolution that we found out, we figured out like, oh, these are people who not only do we love working with and their products are great, but they're actually willing to do experiment and do things right. with us. And that's actually how we ended up being able to develop 5.2 was right. through existing relationships. You know, either they would introduce us to a new manufacturer or they'd be like, we can actually produce stuff for you, you know, according to your designs. Right. Um, Privately. A, as a, right. you know, as a way of kind of expanding our right. already good relationship. Yeah. Um, that, it's so very that's, similar in yeah. grocery. I Is mean, it? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, in the sense that, like, I always say, I thought you walk through a grocery store, there are 30,000 products, and they just happen to appear there, and, like, oh, wow, people are making stuff, and, like, someone's dropping it off in the back, and it's, like, a much more complicated system than that. (laughs) There are so many, you know, little pieces of the puzzle, but every single piece of the puzzle comes back to a relationship. If a distributor respects you, if you're honest with them, if you tell a retailer you're going to be late with a delivery, all of those things build the core relationship and and make it partnership. Yes. Um, and I think that as much as people are trying to, like, quote, unquote, disrupt that, um, at the end of the day, you're just trading in one relationship for another relationship. That you can't, you can't make all of this stuff, like, void of that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but I think also going back to the grocery store thing is, you know, if you, if you make a great marinara sauce, for example, and you're selling really well... It is entirely feasible that the grocery store will say to you, can you make this for us with our store logo on it? Maybe a little bit of a different recipe, sometimes even not. Um, and it's just a really nice way to build volume. You know, the choice is like taking away from your brand versus the volume, but sometimes the volume makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. And then you have a couple of SKUs on the shelf also. So it isn't that dissimilar. Um so, yeah. so the one other piece yeah. that I feel like big takeaway was that just it, through the process of dropshipping and doing kind of exclusive products with some of the makers, it just became real in, increasingly clear that the um, a lot of manufacturers, makers, and not because they don't want to, but just are very distant from the the actual end, end consumer. consumer. Yeah, and so there is no interaction or discussion and you know often you know we would when we have our product reviews which yeah. we do as a group and we test things out and you know you, you, you realize like something doesn't work or you right. want to understand like why did they make this design decision yep. and it it really isn't necessarily with the sort of end consumer in mind yeah. and that there was a way about yeah. bowls with with feet yeah you know or like <laughs> You know, like I get that they look really good or like I think designers really like to make them or Uh potters or I don't know, Uh but they chip the minute that like you actually use them in a real context. And Uh I kind of always want to be like, this is cute, but you don't need the feet. But no one ever asks you, right? No one ever asks me. And people don't, they sort of just accept that kitchen gadgets and tableware like is what it is because it has to be. Right. As opposed to like actually there are opportunities for improvement for still sure. and there's also so that's that was really yeah. m- much of the inspiration behind five two which was we have this amazing well-informed curious enthusiastic community and then we of 
you know, of, sh- of um, you know, readers and cooks and yep. shoppers. And then we also had this community who yeah. would love to hear from them. Yeah. You know, and that if we can sort of put that, combine that together, it can be a really um, unique, unique opportunity Definitely. to create a completely different kind of product line. So it makes sense because it was, at some point did the, I don't know, did ever, did the retail sales of the products overtake advertising oh, yeah. as a revenue stream? Yeah, it, yeah. There's, it's 75% Oh, now. wow. Yeah. Which is great because then you can kind of retain a lot of the sort of integrity of the site without having to have like a ton of ads yeah. on it to make mm-hmm. it work. Oh, that's so and cool. Well, and, you know, we obviously, we also work really hard to work with, you know, brands who right. we, we know we believe in and we're, you know, and excited right. to. The, you know, the... Um, and the other thing I just wanted to note, which is um, that as of 2019, which is the first full year that 5.2 has been um, up and running, it's it's already the number one um, brand on on on. I think it's on me buying silicone <laughs> covers for pans. Okay, we're going to take a little break, and then we're going to come back and talk to Christina and get, get into, like, the deets. Okay. Okay. This episode is brought to you by Fair Kitchens. The food service industry faces a challenge. More people are eating out, yet restaurants are losing talent. Why is this? Research by Fair Kitchens reveals a serious well-being issue within professional kitchens. 74% of chefs are sleep deprived to the point of exhaustion. 63% of chefs feel depressed. And more than half feel pushed to the breaking point. This can't be ignored. Fair Kitchens is a movement based on the belief that a positive kitchen culture makes for a healthier business. By taking the pledge to be a Fair Kitchen, they'll provide you with free information, tools, and resources to help you take action towards making your restaurant more stable, productive, and happy, which positively affects the guest experience. It's time to act now. Learn about the Fair Kitchens code and join the movement at fairkitchens.com. I'm back with Amanda Hesser and Christina Wasserman from Food 52. Okay. Christina, you started at Food 52 as a buyer. Yes. Right? So you were hired to help buy things from those makers and producers and whatnot. Um, What were you doing before then? How did you land this job? That seems like a lot of fun. Yeah. I know. It was (laughs) kind of a dream job. Um, I've been with... Food 52 for five years, so right. um, I've really grown a lot in my career also at Food 52. Um, but before getting here, I was at Calvin Klein um, working in their home department mm-hmm. uh, doing buying and product development. Um, so it was namely for their uh, collection line, which was kind of like their flagship store. So they were still working with very artisanal kind of right, small I remember. makers. Yep. They um, had like that the black like yeah kind of single like, plate ever yeah yeah right. they're very high-end yeah. yeah. minimalist yeah. um line but then also working on like white label bedding at mm-hmm. for macy's at bloomingdale's right um so kind of got both worlds which was really interesting um and worked very closely with you know designers and right. manufacturers there um and then before that i was at fab.com one of the early 
flash sale sites. Right. Um, uh, and kind of a pioneer in um, just home design online, I right. think, at that time. Um, working specifically in kitchen and tabletop. So, you know, I worked with big brands like Le Creuset and Nespresso right. and smaller, you know, indie brands out of Brooklyn. And um, it was super fun, very fast yeah. paced. Um, so that's kind of where I got into home specifically in kitchen. Um, and then when I came to food 52, uh, yeah, I really focused on building out their kitchen assortment. So that's, that's kind of been my focus. Um, there was a colleague actually I worked with at fab. She brought me over to food 52. Oh, cool. Um, so we, uh, kind of rejoined each other. She (laughs) focused more on home and table and I really start to started to build out kitchen and you know, bring on cookware. And did you know when you started that the that there was sort of a end goal to create a line of of your own or a, you know? I think maybe not quite as clearly, but um, exclusives and collaborations. Right. Those were always you know we were always seeking to do new and interesting things with the brands we were working with, and you know for a, f- a few years we started talking about specifically making our own products and kind of building out our team. Right. Um, it really was like a two person buying team for, um, like three or f- three or so years. So we, <laughs> too many years, we yeah. were doing everything from operations, you know, working with warehouses and right. kind of managing those relationships, building those relationships, um, and, you know, helping them kind of either launch their brand or, you know, do something new with us. Right. Um, and when it was time, to launch five, two, was it sort of like Amanda was like, okay, now, I mean, how did it internally just like, what was that decision? Like, when did the, cause it's a fine line in between a partnership collaboration, you know, exclusively for, and your own new label. So what was that discussion like? And how did, how did it kind of work? I'm curious what your memory is. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think about a year before we launched, it was becoming more of a serious topic. And I just kind of remember Jojo and I kind of bouncing random ideas off of Man and Merrill. And um, were there gaps? Like, were there things that you felt you saw that your community wanted that you weren't able to give them? Like, did it come? Did were those the types of ideas or, you yeah, know, like, you know, we're buyers. So we're looking at sales data and we're looking at, you know, types of products or colors or holes in the assortment. So right. we're kind of like thinking about this like future assortment. And I, I have this memory, I think when like five, two was born <laughs> that Amanda Merrill, we were having this meeting and we presented them this big deck of these products we could produce. And they were like, no, no, we have to do this with our community. Yeah. Um, and it was kind of like a genius moment because we knew that that should have been the core of the product line all along. Right. And, you know, we were listening to our community through our data and through yeah. um, just also being so familiar with the brand. Right. Um, but they really pushed us to that next step and saying, no, we really need to bring people into the design process. Which is, I mean, I remember being on my Instagram stories and it was, a st- I mean, I remember there was a story 
do you like this material? What shape do you like? How do you like to put your, you know? And I just, I just, rem- I think I texted you mm-hmm. at the time because I was like, yeah. this is really freaking cool. And this is different than like everything else. Because everything else is like, you kind of know that like personalization, quote unquote, is like, there are three things. You fill an algorithm and you get the thing. This felt like it was truly kind of from the ground up. But what I think is interesting, and it goes back to grocery again, too, is like people who are buyers or, you know, they're they're looking holistically at assortment Mm -hmm. in a way that I, as like a founder, have never thought of. You know, I'm very much like this is the product and this is how the consumer is going to use this product. And what I like about bringing in someone with sort of that buying expertise is they're looking at the big picture and you're actually looking where there are holes. And, and the same like when I interviewed the, the Fresh Direct buyers, they look at a category. So they're looking at salad dressing or pasta or cookies. It's less like, oh, this is a really good product. We have to put this on. It's more like, where, where does our consumer need another thing? And then let's go find a thing that fills that. You know, it's a little bit of both. Yeah, but it has to, you know, make sense in the right. overall picture. And right. It's all... There's the product story, and then there's, like, the overall story right. and message you're sending to the customer, um, so even when they are launching one product. Yeah. Were there um, – so that was sort of like, okay, now let's make some ground rules. Like, <laughs> now let's make some parameters, like, who we are, who we're not, what we'll make, what we won't make, how we're going to make them, what kind of questions we're going to ask. Like, did you go through that whole process? We did. And we also did go through a branding process. We worked right. with an agency called Creech, which was fantastic because we felt like we really needed, it needs to have its own identity. Yeah. And why did it need to have its own identity? Because we felt like, um, so, like all of the products we were selling to date were really kind of under this sort of aesthetic umbrella of Food 52. And we yeah. wanted to maintain that, but we felt like you know, if, if for anyone who's new coming to Food 52 or somebody who, you know, is very familiar, we wanted them to, like, instantly be able to distinguish our, like, our Your you know, community-driven 5-2 right. products. And right. so um, we just felt like for the um, just lo- longevity of the brand, like, that that would be a, a, a an important first step. Um, and, you know, it was not an easy process, but, you know, we all did right. it together. It's a second company, it was, essentially, yes. that you yeah. started. yeah. yeah. Because I often feel like I'm starting, I did actually literally start a second company, but yeah. I kept the name. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kept the name because I was, I mean, I guess it's different with direct, but I, I wanted to leverage the brand that I had built. And I was worried that if I started this completely different thing, and it remains to be seen, it's actually a clunky name for a CPG product. Like, it should be like Wowza Sauce or something, you know, <laughs> instead of Haven's <laughs> Kitchen. So we'll see. I need to faint, like change the logo a little bit too because it's a little long on the paper. But there are definitely things but like, that, you, you know. know the, I mean, but the, I also feel like there's, you know, if you think about like Stonewall Kitchen or right. Barefoot Contessa, like these, these names like that are legacy like. Legacy to them. You remember them. Yeah you, yeah, you remember them. They sort of, you yeah. don't necessarily. It's it just, it's very wide. The lo- it's a very wide logo because it's a circle <laughs> and then we can talk about it. But Well, I like it. Thank you. But, you know, we, we struggle with that with Food 52 right. in that, like, you know, we see our brand as, you know, it's for people who see food at the center of a well-lived life. Right. But we don't see ourselves as like a narrow food brand in the way that has, you know, sort of 
food media has historically we see ourselves as like food touches all aspects of your life so that includes travel that includes home right we sell a ton of home goods yeah you know but they come under food 52 yes you know and also bought those and we get (laughs) excellent (laughs) well we you know but we get a lot we do get you know some questions about that and like well you know how can you call like we actually when we were when we were developing five two one of one of the examples that we used as kind of a guiding example was like well if we do bedding which Mm -hmm. we are now doing cool um is it going to be weird for the the product label to say food 52 on the late yeah and we were like yeah that's kind of weird yeah like no that makes sense because it has food in the name it's i it it makes a lot of sense yeah i mean that actually makes a lot of sense haven's kitchen is probably not going to go into bedding but you could maybe i I don't know haven's kitchen maybe yeah yeah, the havens yeah i think this is (laughs) sauce is enough for me for now um okay so it took you about a year from sort of like okay we're going to do this we're going to create this brand we're going to create sort of the parameters i feel like it was like mid-january we decided we like officially decided and then it launched in october oh wow so it was pretty fast yeah i mean we you did prioritize the first couple of launches to be products that you felt like you could get produced somewhat quickly yeah Yeah. how did let's talk about that without having a you know a big roadmap ahead of us we kind of just dove in um in terms of those first few products um you know wanting to do something that we felt was achievable so the wood cutting board right um wood is a pretty easy material you know you can set up cnc machines um they're pretty easy to design, to tweak, to prototype. We were working right. with a manufacturer in the U.S. also. So right. that was just made communication much easier. Yeah. Um, so it was a great first product to kind of just get us off the yeah. ground. So, I mean, because I'm thinking about this. Now I'm actually really thinking about this. This was like an operations situation where you had to figure out like products that could be fairly easily made with, you know, not too much craziness. Your website had to be changed so that it accommodated this new thing Mm -hmm. you had this whole branding thing and and did you hire a new team too like or did you just no it's just kind of you am I looking at the team (laughs) it was I have one more person okay (laughs) well you have one more person now but she was heading up buying for our largest category right which was kitchen and also getting all of this off the ground wow um, which was um yeah, it's a busy year. Was <laughs> there ever was there ever any um, concern that you were competing with the people that you had traditionally been supporting? Like, no. does that make any sense? Like that mm-hmm. uh, that now you have your own version and it's maximized, but you're also selling so and so's fill in the blank pot or mm-hmm. tray or cutting board and did they was there ever any concern or pushback from them or did you guys ever have any sort of we're going to build this kind of firewall so that we're careful not to step any toes or I think this is where the relationship part Mm -hmm. comes back into play and just you know myself you know having worked with over I think over the course of my time at food 52 probably over 500 brands I've worked with right um just had really great relationships. Um, and even in developing the assortment, you know, we're looking for holes and we're looking for complementary products. We're not looking to, to compete. Yeah. Do a version, you know, yep. how Amazon makes a, a version of one of their best selling items. Right. And just to capitalize kind of on that product. Right. Um, we were really looking to make 
different differentiated product, not only in our own assortment, but in the market, you know, right. products that were different than what we were seeing. Yeah. Speaking um, of, can we talk about the lids? Sure. <laughs> okay. I, so I got them as a gift. Um, I'm kind of obsessed for everyone listening. There are these silicone lids that are, they come in a set, they're different sizes. And I am, I don't know what happened to all of the lids of all of my pots over the course of my life, but they're all gone. I don't know. I honestly, it's like a teaspoon. I have three teaspoons left in my house. I don't know where they all go, but they're gone. And so these lids you can put on any size pot that's like smaller than it. And it like, seals it it mm-hmm. like acts as an actual lid and they're not banging all over the place and they don't take up all this space and I don't have them anyway so it's great was that where did those come from I mean that's because that's that is that's a really good product yeah those um I mean there's a few like very so beyond the pot and they're pretty yes. they're really pretty colors too. beyond the um use for cooking in pots yeah um they're great for st- storing food yeah so instead of using saran wrap um tin foil um, yeah, you can just put them on a bowl put I it on a bowl pop time. it in the fridge yeah. in, in the freezer even um so we had gotten a lot of feedback just around eco-friendly sustainable storage, products right. so that's kind of like where those were born that so idea. they were born for storage not for cooking well that no i mean they're equally as good for both but that yeah. was where like the right. main kind of idea because how often do you have a big like i made a pot of kitchery last night and I had my big Dutch oven that I made it in and I didn't want to put that in the fridge because of all the reasons. So I dumped it in a bowl and I put the silicone thing on top and I felt like a winner. I really, it was like, it's a good thing. No, they're amazing. They're one of our most popular products. They're easy to use. They're fun. Um, The other thing too, with there are certain things like that in the market, but they're all just Ugly. Very ugly. Yeah. <laughs> so I've never seen anything like they're kind that. Of, there's a bunch. I don't know why, but there's this theme of silicone lids being shaped like flowers or big daisies right. or yeah. kind of very kitschy. Right. Um, so as a buyer, you know, we'd see them all the time like, this is an amazing product. It's just But it's got to so be designed better. Yeah. Ugly. Yeah. <laughs> we have to make a better version. Yeah. Um, so. Um, Do you now have a process where like so what does the funnel look like in terms of, you know, products? I'm imagining you have your assortment needs. The community is saying, can you make a tong mm-hmm. that has a rest so it doesn't fall off the side or whatever it is, you know, a whisk that. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that idea. The weighted whisk is mm. a very good idea. I've been hearing ah. that one circling around oh. a little yes, bit so dry, that it doesn't like fall bloop. out. Yeah, and, and like puts ah. all over. I love that is not that. my idea. I don't remember <laughs> whose it is, but I, I can just say it's not mine. I, I heard that. I just That's don't want anyone fantastic. thinking I'm taking credit for it. So, so you're having, so how do you decide? Is there a, is there like an Excel program? Where it's like all the ideas plus sort your of. needs. Then so one yeah. of the things I actually feel quite proud of, just yeah. as a company, is that we have resisted being just ruled by data. Yeah, like we really and go, you have a lot of it. Yeah, we have yeah. a lot, of, and it's interesting and it's useful, but it's not the most important thing. Like you have to be constantly be weighing. So like with five two, like com- community feedback is most important. 
we, and then we are guided by sales data. And that's, that's sometimes how we, we figure out like, oh, you know, <clears throat> this category of products tends to sell well in our shop. Mm -hmm. So we know our community likes that. Let's ask them about what details they want right. to improve that thing. Right. Right. But then there's also, um, you know, just internally, like we all have a lot of passion and right. and our own expertise and convictions about these products and things that we want in our lives. And right. so just to give you an example, and I think it's really yeah. important that we continue to <clears throat> to do to do products like this. But you know, Christina um, had a frustration around laundry bags. She was like, uh -huh. I hate carrying my laundry bag to the laundromat. <laughs> yeah. Like, why is there not a laundry bag that's like a backpack? Like has a backpack, yeah. But that's also attractive and right. that, you know, allows me to, you know, slip in, you know, my wallet and my this right. and that. And so oh she my gosh, just created so it fun. because yeah. we had a maker who could do it. Right. We had lawn, we had dryer balls, which were a bestseller. Right. So like, you know, she designed it so it has a pocket that can fit For your dryer, dryer balls. balls. And, you know, like there, there was no data telling us this. Right. No. <laughs> there wasn't community like screaming out for a laundry bag with a right. that's a backpack. But it just seemed like, hey, this does this should exist in the right. world, and like, why not? I know. Why I, not create it? I met a woman once who who was the person who designed faucets, <clears throat> and I thought she was one of the most riveting people I'd ever met because she had, you know, she was like, you might hit it with your elbow, but then if you hit it, the, she had all of these amazing thoughts. Like, and she was an industrial designer, I mm -hmm. guess, and so that would have been a career that I would have loved to have known existed yes. 25 years ago. Um, but yeah, so going back to the funnel, so I think I think I read about 10,000 people weighed in on that first cutting board. Mm -hmm. um, that's a lot of people, and that's a lot of weighing in. And I'm sure there were people who wanted it to be purple mm -hmm. and things like <laughs> that. So how do Someone you... Someone wanted it to look like in the shape of a whale. Yes. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. <laughs> but we and, didn't do that. Right. Maybe next um, year. <laughs> so have you gotten any sort of like, why didn't you take my design idea and make a purple whale? I mean, has you gotten any I've of that? Not heard anything. No. I think people are just happy and excited to, to give their opinion. Yeah. And um, I also love that with those surveys, kind of like going back to what Amanda said about data not ruling everything, it influences us in terms of how we kind of create the you know the structure of the assortment or the the category or the product or the price point we're looking to hit. Um, but with the surveys, whether an online survey or a social quiz, we read through every comment. Yeah, that's amazing. And that's where some of our best ideas are found. So it's not going to be in that aggregated data of mm -hmm. how big should the cutting board be. Or... It's in like the tiny one person's comment. Yeah. Which goes is. back to that person in Indiana. Mm -hmm. And that's what I love about the story because it, it, it's been a complete through line since 29, mm -hmm. 2009, right? Like you are actually crowdsourcing not from like 30,000 feet, but from like the ground. Mm -hmm. And and I think that's kind of the secret sauce to to why you've been able to build what you've built and why people trust you. Um, is I mean, would you agree or do you think there's... I mean, that's our hope, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's our goal. Like we feel like that's a worthy um, endeavor. Yeah. Um, is something that we, we would want. We want to exist in the world. Right. And so, yeah. Um, Plans, ladies? Plans? Yeah, well, we're mapping out our retail. <laughs> like, we're going to open a store. 
Okay. Which is very exciting. That's exciting. And we actually feel like that to us is like a, an amazing right. opportunity to hear Just five from two? more. It'll have a focus, uh, definitely an emphasis on 5-2, but it will have other things. It's right. really, um, ideally, as a kind of distillation of everything we do right. at Food 52 and not not really, like, not just a store. Right. You know, and... An experience. And, yeah, <laughs> but, like, you know, sort of a place that sort of... Um, You've that, been talking that, about wanting a yeah. store. I remember <laughs> no. talking to you in, like, 2013, and you wanted a store. Like, you want a physical place. <laughs> Is it going to be... Is it going to be like scan and it will get sent to you type of thing? Or is are you going to have like inventory, inventory? That is a hot topic around the <laughs> office. Yeah, we're working, we're working through that. We're going to have some inventory for yeah, sure. Yeah. But we are sort of working through like what do you do about heavier yeah. items? Like yeah. nobody wants to carry them. Yeah. Um, although. Depends where you, depends on where you live. Right. Yeah. Like if we right. had a store, you know, in the suburbs or, you know, right. um, someplace that's, you know, not. Have we picked a location? Um, Ish. we have, we, <laughs> we're, we're not quite, we know we definitely have not like, we're, okay. we're not on the real estate hunt yet, but right. like it'll be in the New York city metropolitan area. Okay. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. Um, last question, anything that you feel like founders today, you know, you've been in this game for a while and congratulations. You've also technically sold the company is that the way to say it even <laughs> we, though we you sold kind the of, majority stake of right. it yes yeah and uh-huh. you like you still run the company yeah. business as usual but that takes yeah. some pressure out um which has to be kind of amazing so congrats thank you um what would you advise founders these days to think more about like what are you seeing that's almost either disappointing or you're like oh i wish you know or just something that you wish someone would have told you earlier on Actually, I think um, a lot of people um, tell you what they think you should be doing, and it's not, you know, it's it's well intended. Right. But I actually think you really um, should listen to your gut. Yeah. Um, and that's hard to do, right? Yeah. Especially when you, especially when you take money on or, you take yeah. on other people's money mm-hmm. and. Um, and also, you know, as you kind of grow and you have a, a bigger team and there's a, there's a lot of stakeholders. Yeah. Yep. All right. And, um, yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it comes back again to like knowing who you are. And I think more and more companies, you know, it's never been easier to start a business. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think to really sort of like last and rise above and create the kind of, you know, ecosystem that you guys have created, it goes back to just having a very clear identity from day one. Um, so congratulations on that. And it comes through and Christina, awesome. I'm like actually considering getting, is the laundry bag backpack out? Not yet. Okay. I'm (laughs) coming this spring. Super pumped about that for my kids because they're all in college and they all do their laundry. Um, all right. Well, thank you guys both for being here. This has been so much fun. Matt, thank you for being the best engineer. <laughs> thank, um, thanks for having us. Thank yeah, you. no, my pleasure. And um, I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. 
Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.